the book of Exodus uh, this morning. We are in some ways at a high point in the narrative, uh, the, the climax to which the book has been moving. So we've seen some dramatic and amazing things uh, along the way in the book of Exodus. We've seen uh, Moses being rescued from a river as a baby. We've seen God appearing to him in a, a bush that burned but was never consumed. We saw 10 dramatic plagues that forced the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to allow the Israelite slaves uh, to go free. We saw the parting of the Red Sea, allowing God's people to escape from Pharaoh's pursuing armies. We saw the provision of miraculous food and water in the wilderness, the Lord appearing before his people in a pillar of cloud and fire. Uh, we saw the Lord at Mount Sinai descend on the mountain with fire and smoke and lightning and the blasts of trumpets. Uh, and then recently we've been considering the, the giving of the law as the Lord tells his people how they are to live in the land uh, that he's going to give to them. And so as dramatic and as amazing as those things may be, in many ways the point of all of them is to get us to the events that we see this morning that are recorded for us in Exodus 24. Exodus 24 and the events contained therein really don't represent a, a new development, but rather a ratification of everything that's come before. So if you have a Bible open, the heading that the translators put over chapter 24 probably says something like, the covenant confirmed. So that's in the ESV or the NIV translation. The NASB uh, says uh, over this section, the people affirm their covenant with God. Right, that's, that's what's going on in this chapter, at least uh, in most of the chapter. Uh, the people are confirming the covenant. The word covenant is only used twice in this passage. It's used once in verse 7 and again in verse 8. But it really is the idea that's controlling everything uh, that is happening. Even some of the sort of strange things that happen here are all part of confirming the covenant that God is making uh, with his people. So before we jump into the specifics of what we see in this chapter, uh, let's just make sure we're all on the same page when we talk about a covenant. If you don't understand what we mean in the Bible when we talk about covenants, then what we see here isn't going to make a lot of sense. So the, the sort of standard definition of covenant uh, comes from the, the theologian O. Palmer Robertson. He says this. He says, a covenant is a bond in blood sovereignly administered. When God enters into a covenantal relationship with men, he sovereignly institutes a life and death bond. A covenant is a bond in blood or a bond of life and death, sovereignly administered. So when we're talking about covenants in the Bible, we're talking about a sacred relationship, a connection or a bond that is so serious that it's a bond of life and death. So maybe you remember back in Genesis chapter 15, God makes a covenant with Abraham. He has him bring a heifer and goats and a ram and some birds. And he has Abram cut those animals in half, right? And then the, the covenant is sort of formalized between the parts of these carcasses. Or even in the passage, Jeremiah 34, that, that Marty just read for us a few moments ago, where the, the Lord speaks to his people and, and he, he talks about the, 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 the halves of the animals between which they formalized the covenant. The idea was you... You formalized a covenant between dead animals to show this is what happens when you break the covenant. Uh, 
right? So intense is the, the life and death nature of a covenant that the verb that's used for the creation of a covenant is the, is the word to cut, right? In Hebrew, you don't make a covenant, you, you cut a covenant or, or you, you, you sever a covenant. It was a, it was a bond um, in blood. It was a bond of life and death. It, it was, a, it was a, a relationship that was so serious, it brought the two parties into such a close relationship that they were like a family. It was like they were now bonded together in blood. And as we're going to see, covenants in the Bible are sovereignly administered. Remember Robertson's definition, a bond in blood, sovereignly administrated. That is to say, these are not negotiations. The, the terms of the covenant are established by God unilaterally. And so the Lord has brought the people of Israel out of bondage, out of slavery in Egypt. And, and as we saw last week, he is taking them into the land of Canaan. And as we also saw last week, God's salvation was not intended to deliver the people of Israel out of Egypt into Canaan and then sort of say, you know, good luck, right? Enjoy your life now. No, the whole point was that they were to go to Canaan and live there in relationship with their God. They were to live in covenant fellowship with their God in the land. That's the point of this whole thing. So back in chapter 19 of the Lord uh, of the book of Exodus, the Lord told his people this. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Right, the point of God's deliverance was to bring the people out so that they could live in a covenant relationship with him. What we've been looking at for the past few months in the Ten Commandments and the various laws that follow after that, it, it's it is the terms of the covenant that God is making with his people. So last week, we saw the Lord warn Israel about the people of Canaan. He told them, you shall make no covenant with them and their gods. God's telling them, you're going into Canaan, and you're to live in covenant, in, in fellowship with me alone. Your allegiance is to me only. And so what we see in chapter 24 is Moses conducting a ceremony to make that covenant relationship official. And so as we consider this passage, I just want to notice three things uh, to get a sense of what's going on here in chapter 24. First, let's look at what it shows us about the God of the covenant. Then second, we'll see the blood of the covenant. And then finally, we'll consider the feast of the covenant. So the God of the covenant, the blood of the covenant, and the feast of the covenant. So let's start there uh, with the, the God of the covenant. In verses 1 and 2, the Lord gives Moses some instructions. Uh, Moses is to come up to the Lord along with his brother Aaron and two of Aaron's four sons, Nadab and, and Abihu, and also 70 of the elders of the nation of Israel. And while they're told to come up, they're also told that they can't come too close. Uh, there in verse 1, uh, the Lord says, come up, and at the end of verse 1, and worship from afar. At the beginning of verse 2, only Moses is allowed to come near. Uh, everyone else has to remain at a distance. If you skip down then to verse 9, you see that, in fact, they did go up. Verse 9, Moses, Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel went up. Looks like according to the Lord's instructions. 
And then in verse 10, we read something unexpected and extraordinary. It says, they saw the God of Israel. And look there at the end of verse 10, what it is that they saw. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. So what's going on there? Well, Moses and Aaron, Aaron's sons and the 70 elders, they, they get a vision of God. And what is it that they see? Well, they see the pavement under his feet. Right, we're, we're tipped off now that this is an anthropomorphic description of God. God is appearing to them in a way that makes sense to them. Uh, they see the pavement under his feet. God is a spirit, right? He doesn't actually have feet like a man, but, but he appears to them in a, in a form, in a way uh, that they can understand and recognize. And, and notice what it is that they tell us or what it is that Moses tells us about what they saw. The pavement under his feet, right? The Lord appears to them. And what is Moses able to tell you about what the ground looked like, right? Because they're looking down the whole time. Right, the sense is that no one wanted to look up into his face. So terrifyingly glorious was his appearance. Even the pavement under his feet can only be described by simile and approximation. Right? It, we're told it was, as it were, a pavement of sapphires, like the heavens for clarity. Right? You get the sense that Moses, our author, is at the edges of what human language is able to communicate and so he just gives us a sense of the grandeur and, and beauty and awesomeness of this vision of the God of Israel. There in verse 12, Moses is called to leave behind the others and to go up and to wait for the Lord on the, further up on the mountain. Uh, we see there in verse 12, the purpose is, is that the Lord is going to give him stone tablets with the law written on it. That's going to become important uh, in a few chapters. In verse 13, Moses goes up with his assistant Joshua. He leaves Aaron and, and the rest behind. He says, Aaron and her are with you as leaders. So that's going to age poorly, as we'll see again in a few chapters. But in verse 14, Moses leads them in charge. Uh, and in verse 15, he goes up. And we see that a, a cloud covers the mountain. Now, if you remember, as the people of Israel came out of Egypt, we saw back in chapter 13 that the Lord was present with his people and led them by a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. Here in chapter 24, we see that the cloud and the fire are back. In verse 15, we read this cloud covered the mountain. And it's clear that this represents the Lord's presence because there in verse 16, we read this. It says, the glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. So the Lord is present on Mount Sinai in this cloud with, with glory uh, shining out of it. Uh, when we talk about the glory of the Lord, we're, we're talking about the sort of bright shining that accompanies his presence. Uh, so you may remember in Luke chapter 2, when the, the angels come to the shepherds to announce the birth of Jesus, we read there that the glory of the Lord shone around them, right? So here at Sinai, this glory is present. There's this great shining glory in the cloud. And there in verse 17, we see it again described by way of simile. It says there that it, 
It was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain. In verse 18, we read that Moses heads up into the clouds. He's gone for 40 days and 40 nights. Chapters 25 to 31 will take place kind of in that interval of time, those 40 days and 40 nights, as the Lord gives him instructions for the tabernacle that they're to create. But we see this glorious picture of the Lord here, a God who is, who is utterly unapproachable and infinitely holy, beautiful, powerful, shining in his glory. Even the pavement beneath his feet is so pure and so clear and so brilliant that it can't really even be described. Right? He is a, a shining glory, a burning fire, and, and is also hidden in inaccessible clouds. The elders and Aaron, they go up on the mountain, but only Moses, God's chosen mediator, can actually meet with Yahweh. And even that, only after six days of waiting. And even that, only with a very specific invitation. And so we see that the God who has made a covenant with Israel is inexpressibly glorious, majestic, and even terrifying. That's why our definition of covenant that, that I read for you at the beginning says that a covenant is a bond that is sovereignly administered. God comes to formalize his covenant, and he does so with a display of regal glory. God doesn't come to Israel sort of wringing his hands, nervously hoping that, that the people will accept his offer. Right? He doesn't come to them with options and suggestions and proposals, but he comes to them in fire and smoke with the brilliance of sapphire, bright shining glory. Right? The, the impression here is clear. It's not up for debate who is sovereign in this relationship. This covenant is not an agreement between two equal parties. There is no doubt whose authority and wisdom and power and brilliance uh, gives them the right to determine the terms of the covenant. You see, Israel responds not with demands or, or thoughts or, or notes on how the covenant could be improved, but there in verse 3 and in verse 7, they simply agree. All the Lord says we will do. They add there in verse 7, we will be obedient. Right? The covenant comes, and it's clear that it's on the Lord's terms or not at all. Right? How could it be otherwise with a God this glorious? And friends, that's really important for us to realize. I think there are plenty of people who are happy to have God involved in their lives, as long as he's content to abide by their terms. Right, as long as God will let me do what I want to do and spend my money the way I want to spend my money and think what I want to think and love what I want to love, well, then God and I are going to get along just fine. But if God comes to me as a glorious Lord who must be obeyed, well, then no thank you. And so each and every one of us has a foundational question to answer about the nature of the world that we live in. In this world, is God in charge or am I? Do we live in a world ruled by one sovereign God or, or do we live in a world that is in fact 7.5 billion different little monarchies with, with everyone acting as the ruler of their own lives? Those are really the only two options. Y your life will be determined by, by which one you believe. 
There is no compromise with God. There is no accommodation or settling. Either you come to him on his terms, either you respond the way Israel did here, all that he has said we will do, or you've rejected him completely. The God of the covenant is glorious and sovereign. What we also see in this passage, though, is that he is shockingly, infinitely kind and condescending. Because it's not just all smoke and glory in this passage. If you step back, the surprise is not that Israel has to accept God's covenant on God's terms. No, the shock here in this passage is that this kind of God would want to have a relationship at all with these kinds of people. Remember, there's nothing amazing about Israel. They weren't the wisest, holiest, sort of most powerful nation. Right? They had nothing that could commend them to God. But here he is, meeting with them, giving them his law so that they can live in a relationship with him. Right? Moses must go up the mountain to meet with God, but God comes down to meet with Moses. I think that's what Moses is showing us here in verse 11 uh, when he, he tells us sort of uh, frankly. He says there in verse 10, they saw the God of Israel. Verse 11, and he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. Uh, that is to say, they saw God, verse 10, verse 11, Surprisingly, he didn't kill them, right? Because if you're paying attention, that's exactly what you expect, right? He is so holy, so terrifying, so glorious, sinful human beings cannot live safely in his presence. But here the Lord is willing to stoop and to come to his people and to be in a covenant relationship with them. See, friends, you don't understand God if you don't see that he is inexpressibly powerful and glorious, but also infinitely loving and willing to condescend to have a relationship with people like you and me. Right? If you only know one or the other, you don't actually know the true God of the Bible. You have some kind of useless counterfeit. Friends, nowhere do we see this truth that God is inexpressibly glorious and also so willing to stoop to be with his people. Nowhere do we see that truth more clearly than in the Lord Jesus Christ. Some 1,400 years after the events that we read about in Exodus 24, the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, the eternal and ineffably glorious Son of God, by whom and for whom all things were created, stooped to take on human flesh, to become a man, to be born as a humble child, Jesus lived a life of perfect obedience, suffering throughout his whole life, culminating in his death on the cross as a substitute for our sins. You see, what we see here in Exodus 24 is this, this picture of God who is glorious, but, but so kind and humble. And Jesus shows us the most glorious God hanging on a cross in agony and shame, for us, so that we could be forgiven of our sins, so that we could be brought into God's family. He didn't remain in that state. He rose from the dead in glory and power. He is now exalted at the right hand of the Father in heaven. 
But it's in Jesus that we see perfectly the, the character of God. In Jesus, we say, oh, right, now Exodus 24 makes sense. Now I understand that a, a glorious God wants to stoop to be with his people. In Jesus, we see glory that comes down in love to have a relationship. And that is the God of the covenant. And that brings us to the second thing for us to see this morning, and that is the blood of the covenant. If we go back a bit to verse 3, uh, Moses rehashes all the, all the words, all the rules that the Lord has spoken, and the people agree to obey. There in verse 4, uh, early the next morning, Moses gets up and he builds an altar at the foot of Mount Sinai. Uh, that might sound a little bit random. This is probably the altar that the Lord was speaking about back in uh, Exodus chapter 20. You remember after the Ten Commandments, we read there in Exodus 24, verse, or Exodus 20, verse 24, the Lord says, an altar of earth you shall make for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. If you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it with hewn stones, for if you wield your tool on it, you profane it, and you shall not go up by steps to my altar that your nakedness not be exposed on it. So the Lord was anticipating uh, that the people would worship him in this way. Moses there in verse 5 calls together the young men of Israel to help out. And they offer sacrifices on this altar that Moses has built. Uh, specifically we read there in verse 5. They offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. Uh, we'll find out more about those offerings in the book of Leviticus. But the real action is there in verses 6 to 8. Uh, we read there about this ceremony that Moses conducted to confirm the covenant. In, in verse 6. It says, Moses took half of the blood from the sacrificed animals and put it in basins. And half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So after these sacrifices were offered, Moses takes half of the blood from all of the animals and he splashes it against the altar that he had built. Here the altar represents Yahweh. It represents the Lord. Dousing it in the blood of the sacrificed animals signifies his participation in the covenant ceremony. The altar is doused first before the people to signify that the Lord is the the sovereign and primary party in this agreement. So again, if a, if a covenant is a, a blood relationship between two parties, the Lord is present in this sort of covenant ceremony uh, in the altar. Then in verse 7, Moses takes the book of the covenant. Those are the laws that we've been seeing in the previous chapters. And he read it again. And again, the people affirm their willingness to be bound by it. Right? The, the reading of the law represents the terms of the covenant. The blood on the altar represents the Lord's willingness to be bound by it. Uh, the people respond that they are, in fact, willing right, to, to take the Lord's covenant on its terms. And then again in verse 8, it says, Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Now that sounds odd to us. So this week, a few of my kids have said, what's your sermon about? 
And I said, Exodus 24. And they said, what happens in Exodus 24? And I said, Moses throws a bucket of blood on people. And they said, why would he do that? And I said, wait till Sunday. <laughs> right? We almost never find ourselves in a circumstance where we encourage people to throw animal blood on us. But the Israelites certainly would have understood the meaning. Again, remember our definition of a covenant. It is a bond in blood. Right? Forming a covenant, this sacred relationship, involved blood. Again, back in Genesis 15, God had Abram cut those animal carcasses in half. Right? Those, those cut carcasses represented the fact that a covenant is always sealed in blood. That blood is a sign of the intimacy and the gravity of the relationship. It's a warning to anyone who would break the covenant. But there's more to the soaking of the altar and the people with blood than we might immediately think. Because perhaps counterintuitively, this messy and bloody ritual was actually a picture of spiritual cleansing. Look at what the author of the New Testament book of Hebrews, as he looks back on these events in Exodus 24, as he explains what's going on here for us through the lens of the death of Jesus. Look at what the author of the book of Hebrews in the New Testament says about Exodus 24. So this is Hebrews chapter 9, starting in verse 18. He says, Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. The first covenant being the one we see in Exodus 24. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, as we've been seeing, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. So we'll see that a bit later in the book of Exodus. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. You see, Moses establishes this covenant with blood because blood has a, a symbolically purifying effect. The blood of a sacrifice shows that a price has been paid for sin. It, it shows that an animal has died in the place of a guilty sinner. So as the author of Hebrews puts it there, there, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. To have the blood of the covenant sprinkled or, or poured on you, it meant that you were agreeing to have the death of that animal stand in your place. The death that you deserve for all the ways that you've sinned, for all the ways that you have and will break the covenant. But there is a problem with this covenant here in Exodus 24. It's a problem that, again, is identified for us by the author of Hebrews in chapter 10. In chapter 10, verses 1 to 4, we read this. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. See, the covenant that God makes in Exodus 24 with Moses, it is inaugurated with the death of animals. 
And as you, we're going to see going forward, there, there are going to be a lot of other animal sacrifices prescribed so that the people can atone for their sins, for the ways that they fail to keep the covenant. But the author of Hebrews points out that this system is just a shadow of God's real and final salvation because the blood of animals can't ultimately stand in as a substitute for people. It can't finally take away our sin. Right, the people of Israel here, they promise to obey the covenant in verse 3 and verse 7, and it sounds so good. But within a month and a half, they're going to be worshiping a golden cow. And so if the covenant is a bond in blood, and if the price of breaking the covenant is death, then well, how does a goat ultimately stand in your place? This is what the author of Hebrews is pointing out when he says this is why sacrifices had to be offered over and over and over again. This is not the only sacrifice that we see in the Old Testament. Right? This blood was not effective to cleanse the people permanently from their sins. Instead, the, 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 the repetition of sacrifices throughout the Old Testament is just a constant reminder of sin. The covenant established here in Exodus 24, it's temporary. It is to point the people of God towards a better, sort of coming, final covenant. The covenant that God would make with his people, not with the blood of bulls and goats, but the covenant that God would make with his people through the blood of his son. This would be the covenant that permanently deals with our sin problem. Right, the first covenant was established with blood at the base of Mount Sinai because, again, as Hebrews 9.22 reminds us, there is no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood. Right, in order to make this a, a proper covenant, there has to be blood. And just as Moses covers the, the people in the blood of a sacrifice, so when we come to Jesus by faith, we are covered, we are sprinkled, we are cleansed from our sins by the blood that he shed for us on the cross. Friend, if you desire to be in a right relationship with God, he extends to you this morning the opportunity to be in a covenant relationship with him. But first, you'll need to have your sins forgiven. You will need to be spiritually cleansed. You'll need to pay the price for all the ways that you have violated God's law, for all the ways you've been living as if you were the king of your life. And the good news is that Jesus has paid that price on behalf of his people. All you need to do is be cleansed with that blood. All you need to do is be covered in the blood of Christ. Not literally, of course, but figuratively. When you turn from your sin, when you say, all that the Lord has commanded, I will do, when you put your trust in Jesus and his blood shed for you, then the Bible says you will be cleansed and forgiven. Jesus' blood has the power to cleanse anyone who will turn from their sins and trust in him. If you've not put your faith in Christ, you need to be sprinkled with the blood of the covenant. Not the blood of an animal sacrificed thousands of years ago, but with the blood of the Lord Jesus. We would love to talk to you more about what that means. If you have questions, I'd encourage you to talk to me after the service. Talk to the friend that invited you. Talk to anyone you've seen up here. We'd be delighted to tell you more about that. And for those of us who are followers of Jesus already, let me just give you a couple of thoughts on this. First, I think we should never cease to be amazed as we contemplate the salvation that the Lord has provided for us. As we've been going through the book of Exodus, we have seen time and time again, 
how perfectly the Lord Jesus fulfills all of these promises, all of these laws, all of these events. I feel like I've preached the exact same sermon from 24 different chapters of Exodus. Right? God, in his love, saves his people from their sins with a, with a mighty hand through the death of his son. He brings them into relationship with him. Right, as we've looked at Exodus, we've seen time and time again how the Lord Jesus is the fulfillment of all these things. Right, 1,400 plus years before the birth of Jesus, these people stand at the base of a mountain being sprinkled with blood. And all of that is meant to give them a taste, a sense, a view of what God's ultimate salvation is going to be like. Right, the author of Hebrews can look back and say, that was a shadow of what God was going to do. Right? The work of Christ is all the more amazing, all the more wonderful when we consider how carefully, how, how thoroughly, how thoughtfully the Lord has planned it out throughout the history of Israel. And second, as we think together about what it means to be covered in the blood of the covenant, not the blood of the old covenant, the blood of sheep and goats that, that ultimately couldn't cleanse anything, but the blood of the, the Son of God uh, who is able to take away our sins. Uh, as a church, we need to allow that truth to have its full effect in our lives. I think sometimes we have a truncated sense of, of what it is that the blood of Christ does for us. Right? I think we, we sometimes think that, that its only purpose is to save me from my sins, to bring me into a covenant relationship with God, and ultimately to get me to heaven. Right? If that were all, it would be amazing. Right? It would be far better than you could ever imagine or deserve. But that's actually not what the Bible tells us. That, the Bible tells us that's not all that the blood of Christ accomplishes. Right? Listen carefully, again, to what the author of Hebrews says in a couple of different places. Uh, in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to the beginning of verse 22. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. Again, back in chapter 9, verses 13 to 14. I don't think I have a slide for this, so just listen carefully. The author of Hebrews says, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, right? So basically, if, if Exodus 24 is great, how much more, Hebrews 9.14, will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? My brothers and sisters, did you, did you catch what he's saying? We have had our hearts sprinkled, not literally, but, but truly, spiritually, sprinkled clean with the blood of Christ. Right? And that word that the author of Hebrews uses there, that word for sprinkled, it's a, it's a perfect participle. It means it's a, a past action that has ongoing and continuing consequences. Our hearts were sprinkled at one time in the past, and that has an ongoing effect in our lives. And what is that ongoing effect? What is the result of having hearts that have been sprinkled clean with the blood of Christ? Well, the author of Hebrews says that our consciences are cleansed. He says there that our, our consciences have been purified. 
See, if you're a follower of Christ, if you have been cleansed by the sprinkling of the blood of Christ, you have no guilt before God. You are completely liberated. There is nothing standing against you. No sin, no shame, no condemnation. Right? Not because you're good enough, but because the blood of Christ is that powerful. Not because you've never done anything shameful or cowardly or perverted or selfish or hateful. Right? Of course you have. But because if you're in Christ... Those very real stains have been completely washed away. He shed his blood to cleanse you and to wipe away the stain of guilt from your conscience. And what he washes away is washed away for good. Brothers and sisters, you you don't fully appreciate, you're not living out the salvation that God has accomplished for you unless you're living in light of this truth. Jesus' blood doesn't just get you to heaven. Praise God, it gets you to heaven. But it actually transforms your life now. When Satan tempts you to despair and tells you of the guilt within, when you wake up in the middle of the night and you find yourself tallying up all the ways you've failed and all the things that are wrong with you, when you see someone or something that reminds you of your sin and you just want to crawl in a hole, Brothers and sisters, in that moment, there is a truth that is greater than the truth of your sin. There is a cleansing power that is stronger than even the most tenacious stain of sin. If Jesus didn't shed his blood for you, if he didn't rise from the dead for you, then you are still in your sins and there is no remedy for your guilt and shame. But he did and he has. And so if you are in Christ, you have no guilt And you're free to live that way, to come boldly into God's presence, knowing that he accepts you and delights in you as an adopted child, to live free from guilt and shame. Oh, brothers and sisters, we've been cleansed by the blood of the covenant. We've seen the God of the covenant who is glorious and stooping. We've seen the blood of the covenant that cleanses us from the stain and the guilt of our sin. And that brings us then to our final point as we consider uh, this passage this morning, and that is the Feast of the Covenant. And we'll be brief here. I've I've skipped over one important uh, event and detail. Look there in verse 11. So we read about Moses and the elders and Aaron and the rest. Uh, It says there that verse 10, they see the, the God of Israel. Verse 11, he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. See, covenant ceremony is not quite finished when the people affirm their willingness to be bound by it and are splashed with the blood. The covenant ceremony isn't over until there's a celebratory meal. Right? Once the covenant is made, once it's ratified, there is a meal then to celebrate the newly established and formalized relationship. It's a very common thing in our culture. If you have a wedding, right, a new relationship is established, everyone just knows, hey, now it's time to eat, right? We go, we have a reception, we have a party. There's a a celebration about this relationship that's been established. So Moses and the others, sort of on behalf and representing the people of Israel, the covenant is uh, confirmed and affirmed. They go up 
God doesn't kill them, but instead it says they ate and they drank. How amazing. I really wish Moses had told us what they ate and drank, right? My guess is it was amazing, right? They should have died, right? That's verse 11. God did not kill them, but instead shares table fellowship with them. They sit down in the presence of their God and enjoy a meal. Atonement has been made for their sin, and now the way is clear for fellowship. And of course, Jesus inaugurates his new and better covenant with a meal, celebrating the Passover with his disciples some 1,400 years after Exodus 24. In Luke's gospel, we read that Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took a cup of wine. And in Luke 22, verse 20, he says, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. See, brothers and sisters, when we come to the Lord's table together, we are celebrating the covenant we are, we are having a covenant meal, and it's a covenant in Christ's blood. Jesus meets us at the table, holding out to us his bread, the bread representing his broken body, and the cup representing his shed blood, these, these things by which the new covenant is enacted. And we come in faith to feast, to confirm, to celebrate all that Jesus has done for us, We, when we come to the table, are enjoying the privilege of feasting in the presence of our God. But you know, this this Lord's Supper, it is not an eternal ordinance. This is not the only experience that you will ever have of feasting with your God in his presence. Because there is a coming day when there will be a kind of final covenant celebration. In Revelation 19, we read about a wedding feast called the marriage supper of the Lamb that will usher in a new heaven and a new earth where God's people will live in his presence. This is what Jesus promised to his disciples in Matthew chapter 8 when he says, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Brothers and sisters, are you looking forward to that feast Are you looking forward to celebrating at that glorious table in the presence of God? God offers fellowship in these covenant meals, but it only comes through the blood of Christ. Jesus himself in Revelation 3 says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Oh, friend, there is a great feast coming, and the invitation is extended to all who will come. So let's pray together, and let's come to the Lord's table in faith. Let's pray.